You know, when I was a child, I believed I was adopted. Um, I was so convinced of this, so my mom and dad, when they both, they both worked, and so when they were gone, I would scour closets. I would search through file cabinets. I even volunteered one time to clean the garage in belief that if I just searched the right spot, I would find evidence of the fact that there was someone like me, but rich, looking for me. <laughs> and here's my rationale. See, no one in my family was like me. I was the only one with red hair. I was the only one with pale skin who burned in the sun. Everyone else tanned. Everyone else in the summer had this glorious brown bronze skin. Me, I would blind people at the beach. <laughs> Everyone was taller than me. Everyone. I was short until I got into college. And, um, like I, and everyone was larger boned than I was. I was the only red-headed, pale-skinned, scrawny boy in my family. Even when all of the extended family came, I was unique. And so I was convinced that I was adopted, that somewhere out there, there was a red-headed, pale-skinned, rich guy looking for me. Imagine my surprise. Later in my life, when I found out that I was adopted, that someone invested everything he had to pursue me, to find me, and to bring me back in relationship with him. It wasn't an earthly father. It was a heavenly father. And that idea of adoption is tucked away in this great song that is one of our elders, Don Rogers, his favorite song. And I've invited PK, or the biggest kid around, uh, and some of our friends here uh, to come up and lead us with Tyler's musical prowess, of course, in a song titled Father Abraham. If you're not familiar with it, again, it's one of my favorite songs. Those of you who are visiting with us, by the way, this is not something we do all the time. This is something for this series that we're going back and looking at Sunday school songs that people learned as children in church that maybe we can re-experience today and recognize the powerful truth locked inside those songs. And so if you would stand with me, we have a great song, Father Abraham. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's an easy song to sing and the hand motions are easy. We're just going to add a body part every time we sing a verse until we're about to fall and die. And that's the song. Tyler, take it away. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord right on Father Abraham and many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Let's go. And no I cheaters. am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord right on left on Father Abraham. Come on, Henry. And many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's still praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. 
So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Father Abraham Keep and many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, chin up. Father Abraham and many sons. I trust and many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, chin up. Turn around, Father Abraham. And many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, chin up, turn around, sit down. So y'all just had to do it once. This is my second time. One of my all-time favorites. I think it's because as a precocious child, it just gave me a chance to go bananas in church. But after all these years of singing it, after all those years of singing it as a child, I don't think I really understood the power of its message until later in my Christian life. I'm convinced there's many Christians who have gone through life misunderstanding the depth and power and purpose and all that God has given you within salvation. That's what I'd like to share with you today. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in the letter of Romans. It's in the New Testament. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and in the eyes of many, it is his greatest work. It is filled with theology. It's filled with practical wisdom on how to live out theology, and that's what's led many to believe that the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, is his by far, hands down, greatest work of depth and wisdom, all wrapped up into one and wrapped up within all of the theology is a powerful term. Let's, let's see it. If you begin Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, look how he starts it. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And look what that means. Look at down at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The Apostle Paul uses a powerful term in that passage. He talks about adoption, wrapped up in all of his theology. Right in the middle of the book, he talks about adoption. And of course, if you know me well enough, you know there's certain questions. Well, what does adoption mean and why should we care? And those are the two things I want to speak with you about today. What does adoption mean? Why should you care? 
Let's begin with what does adoption mean? Adoption, it's a legal and binding decision where one person takes another person into his own family for the purpose of treating him as if he's his natural child. Let me say that again. Adoption, it's a legal and binding decision where one person chooses another person, receives him into his own family, and treats him as if he's his own naturally born child. That's adoption. And when Paul's talking to the Roman church in adoption, it's not some new idea that they've never heard of. In fact, adoption is found throughout the Bible. Do you know that? Here's some really famous stories of adoption. Let me give you some examples. Moses. Remember, Moses was adopted, right? Put your thumb in Romans for a minute. Flip over to the other side of the Bible. The book of Exodus chapter 2. Let me remind you, Moses. If you remember at the time, the people of Israel were in the land of Egypt. They have grown and were numerous, and the Pharaoh, who didn't remember the days of Joseph, decided to uh, enslave the people and kill all of the boys, right? And this is where we pick up the story. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi, I'm in verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him from, for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and had it brought to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, surprise, the boy was crying and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, sure, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take his child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Look at verse 10. The child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Right there, a story of God plucking a, an infant from a precarious position of certain death. He was adopted into the Pharaoh's household. And then if you remember the rest of the story, God used Moses to deliver the people of Israel from their slavery and oppression. There's another one about Esther. You know that story, the story of Esther. Another very similar story where God uses someone in a very precarious situation to rescue his people if you join me in the book of Esther, chapter 2, if you're wondering how to find Esther, it's easy to, to miss it. So if you get to Psalms, just flip a couple books to the left. You'll find it. Book of Esther, chapter 2. Look at how she is described in Scripture. Esther, chapter 2, verse 5. Now there is at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, 
who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Look at verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of former face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Esther, another one, adopted. That God used adoption to pluck someone out of a precarious position, place them in a position of, of comfort, opportunity, and provision. I was thinking, wow, Moses and Esther, both, both young and were both beautiful, right? A form and face. Maybe God only adopts the young and the beautiful, or the bold and the beautiful. But that's what brings us to perhaps the most famous adoption, Abraham. Abraham is adopted in the beginning of this spiritual adoption that we're all a part of. Abraham, the namesake of the song that is now your favorite and will be stuck in your heads for the remainder of the day, you're welcome. Turn with me to Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. Great illustration of of adoption. If you remember, Abraham is called away from his family. Look at how the Bible describes it. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, far from the young and the beautiful, when Abraham, no offense to those of you, 99. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face. God talked to them, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now think about this for a moment. What did God ask Abraham to do? Leave your father and mother. Leave your family where you had stability, where you had provision, where you had definition, where you had alliances, allegiances, and commitments. Leave all of that, and now you give me all of your allegiances, all your commitments. Instead of relying on your dad and his household for your provision, you rely now on me, God says. And I will form you into a mighty nation. You're no longer dependent on your inheritance of your old earthly family. You rely on my inheritance of your heavenly father. And I will give you your portion, which is all of the land of Canaan. And I will provide for you. I will go before you. I will go behind you. You leave that old life. And you start a new life with me. Of course, this thing of adoption didn't end with Abraham. It continued. It got passed on to the nation of Israel. Look at God's words to them. Said, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples. You aren't the few, 
For you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. The truth and power of adoption is found throughout scripture where God chooses people in a precarious position, places them in an adoption where they're provided for, where they're renewed, restored, and placed in a position of honor where they can be used for his glory, his power, and his purpose. The book of Romans, in the midst of all of the theology that Paul puts in Romans, right there smack in the middle, is this theology of adoption. But don't miss it. So I think so often people have a limited understanding of salvation that they stop with just some early theological points of justification, sanctification, but they miss out on this important theological point of adoption. Let me show you. When we talk about salvation, when people understand salvation, there are certain theological terms, the first of which is justification. Justification, here's a definition from Wayne Grudem, my personally, personally, my favorite theologian, doesn't have to be yours, but here's his definition of justification, the instantaneous act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and declares us righteous in his sight. Justification at the point of salvation, when you say, Jesus, please forgive me my sins, the Bible says you are immediately, instantaneously justified. You are declared righteous. When God sees you, he no longer sees you buried under the consequences of your sins. You have been declared righteous and holy in his sight. Look at the apostle Paul describes it in Romans 5. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. If you have received salvation, you are declared justified, emptied of the consequences of your sins. And now I got to tell you, that's the popular point. And oftentimes Christians stop there. Hey, yay, I get declared free from the consequences of my sin. I can come to church and sing about heaven and I can still live like hell. When all your understanding of salvation is justification, you end up with people who claim heaven but live hell. It's because they're missing the second point of salvation. See, Paul says, once you're declared justified, once you have justification, you then enter into sanctification. Justification is a work of God. He declares you righteous. It's all God. God does it, offers it to you. All you need to do is receive it. Sanctification is different. Look at Mr. Grudem, Dr. Grudem. Look at his definition of sanctification, the progressive work of God and man. It's not instantaneous. It happens over time. It's a progressive work of God and man. God has a part, and you have a part that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our daily lives. So when Paul in Romans is describing salvation, he's describing justification and sanctification. Look at what he says next. 
Romans 6, the next chapter after justification, he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As a result, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. He continues, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. That term present yourselves like continually ongoing every day. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not be a master over you for you're not under the law but under grace. So Paul in Romans in this deep letter of theology wants people to understand the power of salvation. If you want to understand all that Jesus did for you and offers to you, you have been declared righteous. You are free from the consequences of your sin, but as a result of justification, that puts you right into sanctification. Justification is the same for everybody. We all need it. And God offers it to everyone who will receive it. Sanctification, it's a progressive work. It happens over time. God has a part, and we have a part. We need to choose to rid our lives of more and more sin and fill ourselves with more and more of the characteristics of Christ. Justification is the same for everyone. It looks the exact same for everyone. Instantaneous, 100% accomplished by God. Sanctification, we partner with God in it. And it looks different from Christian to Christian. That's why Grandpa, when he died in his late 80s, looked far more righteous than I do today. A, Grandpa had 30 more years of practice. B, man, Grandpa was focused on every instance, carving out aspects of greed, anger, lust, control, vengeance, carving that out more and more so that he could be filled with the characteristics of who Jesus is. Paul says, man, if you want to understand the power of salvation, his letter to the Romans, you got to understand justification. If all you have is justification, then you claim heaven and live hell. But if all you have is justification and sanctification, if you know that God has cleansed you of all of your sin and now you need to continue to move forward and be filled with the characteristics of Christ, if all you have is justification and sanctification, sometimes we're filled with questions. Have I done enough? Is Jesus really living in my life? Because I look at my life and I still see sin. Sometimes people think pastors are perfect, so I just want to blow that bubble right out. Talk to my kids. Man, I continue to be surprised at the power of sin in my life. So if all we understand about salvation is justification and sanctification, now we end up with Christians wondering, am I saved? If my kid walks away, can he or she come back? What's that look like? If all we have is justification and sanctification, do we have a confidence in who we are in Christ Jesus? See, I think church is filled with people. If you're like me when I was growing up, man, I probably accepted Christ, quote unquote, 10, 12 times. Anyone else? Always worried, always afraid. Maybe I didn't do enough. Maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe Christ isn't at work. So that's why Paul, in the midst of all of his theology, goes into justification, sanctification, but he doesn't stop there. He then goes into adoption. If you want to understand the power of salvation, what he has for your life, justification, 
Jesus has declared you free from the consequences of your sin, sanctification, because of justification. You now have the ability to rid your life of more and more sin and fill your life with more and more of Christ. But third, if you really want to understand salvation, you've got to understand that when you're saved, you're adopted into the family of God. Again, Mr. Grudem, you're going to love him by the end. Adoption, the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Adoption, when you are saved, you are not just justified. You are not just in this process of being sanctified, but you are adopted. You are a child of God, an heir of creation. You are a member, I have an opportunity to be a child, an intimate relationship with the king of all things and the authority of all the world. This idea of adoption, when Paul wrote it to the Romans, they would have a very keen understanding. They would have a deep respect for us. Sometimes adoption is like, oh, well, adoption sometimes is seen as like second-class family. Man, not with God, not in Rome. Historians tell us there's four truths that everyone would know about adoption in Roman society. Number one, when you're adopted, you lost all rights to the old family, and they lost all rights to you. When you're adopted, your old family, all of your allegiances to those families is gone, is cut off. Your allegiance is no longer with them. Your allegiance is with your new family. The old world, they have no claim on your life. Your new father does. He sets your standards. He sets your relationships. First thing, when you were adopted in Roman society, you lost all rights to your old family, and they lost all rights to you. Second, when you were adopted, you became a full heir of the new father's kingdom and estate. You became an equal and full heir where you were on the books as getting a rightful portion And depending on where you were adopted in the order determined what place you were in the family. If you were adopted before any natural children were born, then you were the oldest in that family. Your firstborn natural son does not have authority or power over the adopted child if he was adopted first. If you were adopted, your family lost all rights to you. And your commitments were broken to them. When you were adopted, you became a full heir of the new father's kingdom and estate. Number three, you'll like this one. In Rome, when you were adopted, your old life was wiped clean. All of your past crimes erased. All your past failures forgotten. All of your old debts completely paid off. Man, when you were adopted into a new family, you truly had a new life. All the allegiances were cut. Everything that defined you before, you had a fresh beginning and a new start. And fourth, when you're adopted, you were sealed in that relationship and it was secured by witnesses. You were sealed. There was no going back. There was no takesies, backsies on this. When you were adopted, it was final. In Roman society, a father could, in this time, kill his own children not as adopted children. 
Man, this is a special privilege. You were chosen to be a part of this new family. Your old life is gone. All of your failures are wiped out. All of your debts have been paid. You have new allegiances, new opportunities, and you have a promise of a new life because your inheritance of the new father's kingdom. And it was sealed. It could never be undone, and it was sealed, many believe, by seven witnesses in Rome. That way there'd be no chance of a claim of illegitimacy once the father passed. Seven witnesses, the perfect number. If anyone ever questioned your claim to the kingdom, any one of these seven witnesses could come and affirm this transaction. Man, when Paul's talking to the people of Rome, not only when you're saved, not only are you justified and sanctified, you're adopted. You're a new creation. All your debts, all of your failures, all of your crimes forgotten. Be in the world, but not of the world. Your allegiances have changed. You're adopted into the family of God. That world has no claim on you, and you have no commitments to them. You're about your father's work now. You're about his kingdom. You have a claim to, you're an heir of creation. You have a relationship with the God who created everything with a spoken word, who holds all authority in his hands, and you get to call him father. And there's nothing anyone can do to take this away from you. Man, when Paul was teaching to the people of Rome, about the power of salvation. He didn't stop after justification. And he didn't stop after sanctification. He went right into adoption. If you want to understand the power of salvation in your life, you need to understand adoption. That's what leads to my second question then. Okay, Brian, so what's so important about it? What's so important about adoption that Paul wrote it, put it right in the middle of his letter? Right in the middle of the deep theology, why does it matter? Why is adoption so important? Glad you asked. That's what we're going to get into the text. And I promise we're going to do it in 10 minutes. So those of you who are clock watchers, I got you. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, starting in 14. Why does it matter? Paul gives us three reasons, three benefits, why being adopted in the family of God is so important to you. Number one. For all who are being led by the Spirit, I'm in Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The text could also read, these who are sons of God are being led by the Spirit. One of the benefits of being adopted as a child of God is you get the Holy Spirit. Everyone doesn't get this. Just children of God. And they get to be led by the Holy Spirit. This term led can lead us to think that he's just given us a map. He's just given us directions, and that's not what that term led means. That term led leads us to imagine someone being picked up and carried somewhere. Let me give you some other instances in Scripture where this term is used, when Jesus was led to crucifixion. They didn't just give him directions. Hey, Jesus, see that mountain up there? Yeah, can you just meet us up there? Mm -mm, Jesus was chained up. There were Roman guards. He was put a burden of the cross, and he was led there. When Paul was put in prison for his ministry, he was led to the chambers of the prison. And he just didn't give a map and say, hey, 
When you feel like it, Paul, go down to the prison. We'll see you there. No, no, no. He was chained up to guards, and they led him there. That's the idea of the benefit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads you. He doesn't just give you options. He doesn't just give you ideas. He doesn't just give you, well, this might be a good idea. This might be a good idea. No, the Holy Spirit leads you. You're given this opportunity where the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you and sometimes feel like he's just picking you up and carrying you through life. And some of you might be saying, well, Brian, I I would love that. How's that work? How does the Holy Spirit lead us today? I don't feel picked up. I don't feel carried. I feel confused. I feel lost. Two ways I want to help you understand how the Holy Spirit can lead you starting this week if you're saved. Number one, Holy Spirit leads us through Scripture. Man, the Bible tells us that this Word of God, the Holy Spirit uses it to direct us, correct us, to guide us through life. Look at what he, Paul says, 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God. Remember, God breathed. We went over this early on in our series. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Man, the Holy Spirit uses this to guide you so that you're fully equipped for everything. Man, I love it. People come and say, Brian, I need help putting my marriage back together. Man, I have ruined my relationship with my wife. It's right here. Takes humility, takes repentance, takes confidence in the power of God, but it's here. Brian, my family's just coming apart. Everyone's yelling and slamming. Brian, it's right here. Brian, I don't know how to live in a kooky culture. California's gone bananas. I don't know how to do it. Guess what? We're not the first Christians to live in a kooky culture. You want to know how to live in a kooky culture? Right here. That's why so many of our ministries at this church bring us to the text. Bring us to this. This is the inspired word of God. This is the Bible. The Holy Spirit uses it to teach, to correct, to rebuke, to encourage, to inspire. First way, you want to be led by the Holy Spirit? Get in the Word. So many different opportunities and resources and tools. You want more? Let me know. We have the Bible study guide. We have Bible studies, men's, women's studies. We have small groups. We have classes on Sunday. Man, so many opportunities to bring you into the Word. You want to be led by the Spirit? Get in His Word. Second way, Holy Spirit leads conviction. Conviction. Holy Spirit will rebuke and correct our lives in order to reach the righteous standards that God has for us. Convict us. Man, how do I know the Holy Spirit's in my life? Do you feel convicted? After you just let your kids have it because of your selfishness, selfishness, not because of their sin, do you ever feel convicted? Once you just let someone have it on social media and then you instantly regret it in your soul, do you ever feel conviction? Where you know you're on a path not of righteousness, do you ever feel conviction? See, a lot of times people don't understand, well, Brent, I don't understand the difference between conviction and shame because sometimes it feels the same, doesn't it? Like, what is my flesh that condemns me, and what is it in conviction? Like, what makes that so special? Here's the difference. Here's how I determine whether it's the flesh condemning me for my failures or the Holy Spirit convicting me. 
Because remember, this is a Holy Spirit's a benefit of being a child of God. Here's the difference. See, when I do something that I shouldn't, this regret, this angst, this hurt in my soul leads you to do one of two things. Either leads you to hide from God, like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, or it leads you to pursue the throne of grace. See, the Holy Spirit, when you're in the midst of sin, the Holy Spirit's like, stop it. Go to God. The flesh will tell you, oh, you're a horrible person. Go hide. My question for you, you want to know whether it's shame or the Spirit? Where do you go? Look at what Hebrews tells us. In the Bible, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, continues, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, when you're in the midst, you know you're wrong. And in your soul, you just have this brokenness and this angst. The work of the Holy Spirit drives you to the throne of grace and throne of mercy. Man, confess it and make it right. Allow God to heal it and restore it. It's a benefit of adoption. Man, as a child of God, you get to be led by the Holy Spirit. You no longer cower in the darkness and shame, hoping that no one ever finds out your brokenness. It allows you to go into a relationship with God. He knows you're broken. He knows you're a mess, and his desire is to whittle away at it little by little. By the time you're 86, like my grandpa, maybe your grandchildren will look at you and say, man, look at what God did in my messed up grandpa. And that would be the dream. That's one of the benefits of adoption, to get led by the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. We've got to hurry. I promise you 10 minutes. Here's the second one. You get led by the Holy Spirit, and you get freed by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15. If you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, you read that and you're like, fear what? Anyone ever fear that you're not good enough? They haven't done enough? You haven't given enough? Or maybe you fear that you've done too much. They've done too much wrong that somehow that jeopardizes your relationship with Jesus. And Paul says, listen, you've been adopted. Man, if you don't understand adoption, you go through your Christian life wondering if maybe Jesus stops loving you. Maybe God doesn't think so highly of you. Maybe God wants to get rid of you. Maybe God has abandoned you. But Paul says, if you understand adoption, you don't have to fear that stuff anymore. You don't have to worry about your worth. You don't have to worry about your value. And you're adopted. You're a child of the king. It doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't matter what you say about you. You're adopted. He goes on, says, not only do you not have to fear that anymore, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out, Abba, Father. Remember we went over that last week, Abba, Aramaic, Father, Greek, The terms on their own mean basically the same thing, an intimate relationship with God, with a dad, with a person. 
You can call him dad. But when put together, it leads you to understand, not only do I have an intimate relationship with dad, but he's an authority. I recognize not just my relationship, but his positional authority over my life. Man, you have the opportunity to call dad. It doesn't matter what they say. You know why? Because of what God has already declared on you. I love how the Apostle Paul says it in verse 31 of that same chapter. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justified you. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he died for you and was raised. He's at the right hand of God who intercedes for you. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. 1 38, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No longer have to fear about value or worth. That you've done enough, prayed enough, been sanctified enough, given enough, or the fact that you've done too much to ever come home to your dad. I said, you understand adoption. And it frees you from that fear and that worry. Last thing, we're encouraged. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That term testifies. term means the Spirit constantly and continually reminds us, gives witness to our position and provides evidence in our heart and our life and our relationship with God. You ever go through life and you just feel this in your heart? You're like, you need to go to God. You need to go to God. You need to go to... Yeah, anyone experienced that? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm not saved. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. So often I have people coming to me and saying, I'm not sure I'm saved because in my heart I still have something saying, go to God, go to God. That's the Spirit. Paul says the Spirit's reminding you all the time of who you are. You are no longer a weakened vessel of sin. You are justified, sanctified, adopted in the family of God. Live in it. Believe it. And look at the last thing he says. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That term heir, you have a rightful claim to an inheritance from God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Check this out. You are a joint participant with Jesus. You will have neighboring portions, adjoining pieces of God's reward. He is not saying, oh, great, now you're Jesus, you're a God-man, and you're eternal, and you're in charge. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying he will treat you as if. The same thing that Jesus gets as a reward as an inheritance, you will get adjoining pieces to that. That is how high God lifts you up in salvation. Unless you think you're special, you're not. It's all God's work that he bestows on you. That's the power of salvation. That's what Paul is wanting us to learn. Man, do you understand what God has done in your life and through your life in salvation? He has justified you. He's declared you righteous. He is in the process of sanctifying you, cutting out the old man and putting in the new man little by little every day. And he's adopted you into his family. 
He has empowered you and placed you in this powerful position so that he can use you for his glory, just like he's done in every other adoption story in Scripture. I love how Paul summarizes it in Galatians. He says this, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave. Therefore, you're no longer a slave. Stop acting like that. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. Start acting like that. Paul's message, man, if we want to see what God does and move forward in the fullness of salvation, justification, sanctification, adoption, the fourth one, just in case you care, is regeneration. That God will finish it when you're through. Everything that you're lacking when you see Jesus will be instantly credited to your life. That's the power of salvation. That's what God desires. So the truth is, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. Are you? Are you adopted? If you are, understand the powerful opportunity given to you by God and live it. And if not, this is your greatest opportunity to not only receive justification and sanctification, but be adopted into the family of God, an heir of all creation, intimate relationship with the God who holds all things in his hands, given to you. All you need to do is confess your failures and accept his gift. Let's pray. Hmm. Jesus, I am grateful for silly Sunday school songs. God, I'm grateful for the deep theological message that's hidden inside. God, I wonder if this one, though, might have been too hidden. For many of us know the song, but we lack to understand the power of what you've done. So God, I pray you open our eyes. Allow us to see you as Paul did. God, open our ears that we might have a greater understanding of the depth of the power of salvation. God, open our, open our minds that we might be able to comprehend all that you are doing and still yet to do in our lives. And God, open our mouths. God, that we might be able to more boldly not only proclaim the complete power of your salvation, but God, worship you as a result of it. God, for so many of us, God, broaden our understanding of what you've done, God, that we might be more equipped to be a brilliant reflection of your miraculous glory and power. And God, I pray for people who are here who aren't sure if they're adopted, that they're not saved. God, they're still wrestling in their, in their shame, in their guilt, 
God, they're still trying to hide from you. God, the desire is to be rescued from all the hardship of this world, to be freed from the dominion of this culture and united in a relationship with you. God, for those people, I pray you open their eyes that they would see you as I do. God, open their hearts that they would have the humility to just confess their brokenness and failures to you in confidence, Jesus, that you'll hear them and forgive them, that you will declare them justified even just now today. And Jesus, I pray you will respond as you've promised, not only justify them, but give them your spirit who will lead them and guide them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And God, give them the confidence of adoption that they would know whose they are and that it might transform how they live their life at home, at work, in culture, and it would impact their, their worship here. God, as a church, we pray you continue to grow us, shape us, form us into your image, stretch our understanding of who you are and what you've done. God, that we might not only understand our position with you, but that we might live it with greater boldness and confidence together. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.